Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's actually spring now. When's the official, like... The equinox. When is that? I told you, I'm going to say, go back to that podcast we yes, did. Yes, we did a whole pod. I'll put it, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll link that. But we did do a whole episode on this. Yeah, we did. What, it's like mid-March. Oh, it is. Okay. I think. Okay. Because in my mind, there's like, spring comes as soon as the ground thaws and I can work outside. And I really don't care what the calendar says. Well, yeah. I mean, it all depends on what you actually want to call spring. True. But if we're going by the equinox, I'm going to Google it because I forgot. This, oh, uh, Monday, March 20th. Hey, it's spring then. At 4.24 p.m. That's very precise. That's when it happens. Okay. Well, then it is officially spring. Yay. Yay. You made it. And today, on the day we're recording, it feels like spring. It does. Finally. For one day only. I have irises coming up. I haven't looked at anything. Oh, I, we've been, well, it's right by where we park our car. And so Silas and I check every day after school, we check for signs of spring. And at first we found these crocuses coming up and they like popped the little round bulb cover up with them. And he saw that and he said, there's a thumb in the flowers. And I was very disturbed for a second until I figured out what he meant. Yeah. That would get you. Yeah. But there's, there's flower buds on our bulbs. There's a Bones episode where the kid finds a finger in a nest. There's a Friends episode where Phoebe finds a finds thumb a in her thumb pop. In her p- That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyways. No more thumbs. No more thumbs. Yes. So it's spring. We're not really talking much about spring today, but that's okay. But we do want to remind you that we have a little competition going, the Make Hannah Pay competition and some people took advantage of it yes thank you ray may and where's waldo for your wonderful reviews mm-hmm. so i owe two dollars to the bloom box program yeah. keep it coming guys my wish list is more expensive than two dollars we cannot buy one thing with two dollars <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's an expensive wish list but it's, that's okay that's okay and it, it's really not as much about the dollars as it is about the fact that reviews help new listeners find us and they help us know if we're giving you what you need from us Mm -hmm. so absolutely so we're pleased with that keep going because you have a few more weeks to do all right what are we talking about today we are going to talk about victory gardens how familiar are you sarah with victory gardens i'm very familiar with the idea of them and definitely all of the vintage artwork. Oh yeah, there's some fun there is stuff around Victory Gardens, especially the pamphlets. Yes, I love the pamphlets. I love the little how to lay out a garden if you have four people in your family and one doesn't like peas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I love how specific their instructions got, and um, but I don't know a lot of the history. Okay, a lot of the details. All right, so. Today, I'm going to give a little bit of background about Victory Gardens, and one of the reasons we're talking about them is because they made a resurgence during COVID. Yeah. It was one of the only positive things that I can identify that happened during that time. 
So um, I don't want to say good things came out of COVID because it's a deadly disease that hurt a lot of people. Right. But there were a couple of tertiary sideline things that we can appreciate. But humans are amazing for our ability to create awesome stuff even when we're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the awesome stuffs that we created. It was one of the awesome stuffs. (laughs) And it comes um, out of other times of great strife in our history. So Victory Garden started during World War I. Mm -hmm. I had always related them to World War II. I think that's because that's what we have a lot left from. That's what we're seeing the ads from. Right, yeah. They were definitely much more popular during World War II. And remember, World War II is longer. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of resources that's the U.S. in World War II, more than we did in World War I. And that's closer to us. I mean, that's my grandparents. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that it's just probably more familiar. Exactly. So they first made an appearance in World War I, 1917, was about the right time. And they were called War Gardens at the time. But by the end of their term in the World War One, um, they had already changed the name to Victory Gardens. Much more positive. Yes, War Gardens <laughs> was a little... Even then, they knew that that was not the best name for them. Um, and one fun fact is remember that like World War One and that time coincided with the Spanish flu and that outbreak. So they also... Um, we're a part of that pandemic as well. History repeats itself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness we're not in a world war right now. Though. I am very, yes. Well, I mean, that's probably up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're going to try not to get too political. <laughs> but the idea was that idle land, and they defined that as like any land that didn't have a building on it and like another purpose. So idle land would be turned into production. So that would mean like schoolyards, lots of schools planted gardens and students cared for them. Your lawns were supposed to become gardens and then uh, vacant lots. They encouraged communities to take over vacant lots. This is not very different than what we see happening now where communities and groups of people are pushing for a better use of of like spaces like this that Mm -hmm. appear vacant. Right. And I should be clear, Victory Gardens were subsistence gardens. So vegetables, fruits, those types Mm -hmm. of things because of the food chain issues that they experienced in both World War I and World War II. So we're talking vegetables for most part today. So during World War II, there was food production, distribution, and preservation issues Mostly because of the labor. So at that time, the labor force was made up mostly of men, and then they had to go to war, and some women entered the workforce, but it definitely wasn't enough to cover labor shortages. women were entering, they prioritized the machinery and supplies that were going to the front. Yeah, so they also had to divert some, so if a machine broke in a food factory, that supplies got diverted to the to the war effort as opposed to fixing the machines. That's interesting. So it was supply chain not that we were suddenly sending all of our tomatoes to Europe. Cuz that's that was always kind of confusing in my head. I was like, well there's no way we're shipping fresh yeah. produce <laughs> to our soldiers, so 
why is this a problem? But it was a lot of labor and and supply chain issues for the most part. Uh, they did ship some produce over seas because Europe, of course, was experiencing a lot worse True. food shortage. And so the U.S. was providing food for a lot of countries, both troops and just civilians. So that was a big portion of it. In some of the reading that I did, they questioned how much was actually needed for produce mm -hmm. to set aside because that, like you said, we at that time we didn't have the ability to ship things that quickly where you could get a tomato from Nebraska to... Yeah, you know. we were eating much more locally mm -hmm. as it was, or canned. I mean, right. we didn't have... We weren't shipping frozen vegetables. Right, yeah. So they were shipping some... I mean, like rations and, and yeah. those types of things. But what kind of started happening more towards the end of the war with Victory Gardens was encouraging people to switch their proteins. Mm. And so trying to get their proteins so that the men on the front lines could get their power from meat. Um, so we were really diverting meat and protein resources. So towards the end of Victory Gardens... In World War II, they did try to encourage people to like start having chickens so yeah. that they would have eggs. There's a lot of talk about peanut butter um, and soybeans. People were encouraged to grow a lot of soybeans. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, yep. so that they could get those yep. proteins. Anyways, so yeah, there was a lot of disruptions happening. So the U.S. government put together a, um, they called it a committee, part of the USDA, who was in charge of promoting Victory Gardens. And they had, like you said, all kinds of, what is propaganda, uh, put out all over the place. Yeah, they pretty, I mean, it's really neat if you, if anyone has like the garden apps that tell you where to plant your vegetables and stuff, this was like the paper form of the garden app. They included like layouts and calculations of, of like how many tomato plants does it take to can or to eat fresh for a family of X number? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would put out signs and posters and pamphlets and it would be on seed packages. They even recorded the propaganda videos to put with in front of the movies before mm -hmm. the movies. You know how they used to do that with like bulletins from the war from the front. They would also do it with Victory Gardens. So... They were really focused on getting individuals, families, to use whatever land they had for provision gardening. Mm -hmm. And it was a good way for them to make up those shortages. So those pamphlets, like you said, covered everything. I think, I wonder if they are one of the earlier pamphlets about, because they put out tons about pests too. Well, we know that kind of, as a separate topic, we know that a lot of our chemical use in the yard comes post-World War II mm -hmm. because this is when we had an actual, you know, surplus of these chemicals right. that could be um, produced at the cost that you could use for leisure, where, you know, I think we were slowly adding use to agriculture, but that's still a business setting, so you can invest a little bit more. But to reduce something at the at the price point that people could just use in their lawns, mm -hmm. um, and and I wonder how different the Victory Garden experience was between 
very urban settings. Right. And, you know, it's hard. All of my garden history comes from family members who did not live in in very urban areas. So they would have combined this victory garden information with their agricultural knowledge. Right. Yeah. And they did talk in some of the research, which um, I put those those links are going to be in the show notes. They talked a lot about the difference between urban and rural. Rural families often all already had kitchen gardens, yeah. as we would call them on farms and ranches and things. But in the urban setting, they were already doing things like rooftop gardens because it's all they had available. Right. And trying to figure out how to garden in containers like they were using their window, their flower window boxes to try to grow vegetables and different yeah. things. So there was a lot of different uses. And then, yeah, they were turning any available public land into start growing a garden here. I wonder if this is where our our fixation comes from. Every school has to have a garden, whether they're capable of taking care of it or not. I yeah, it seems to be so popular to say, you know, my goal in life is to garden with school kids at school. Um, and I wonder if this is where some of that idea came from. Some of that. So uh, one of the sources I read got into that a little bit because they did say that school gardens were already kind of in existence by the time Victory Gardens came around. And that was because they wanted urban kids to continue their um, connection to right. gardens. And so they did use urban gardening at schools as a way to do that and i want i don't know when schools started providing lunch programs either right i know that school gardens factored into the beginnings of those i think that would have been in the first farm bill which is in the middle of the great depression okay so kind of a little bit later than we're talking Uh about yeah wow all right, my master's program is paying off here. <laughs> yeah, right. that was an impressive. You just <laughs> pulled that out of nowhere. It's farm bill year, everyone, by the way. <laughs> I'm, it's going to be exciting. I'm looking at the statistics you found, though, and 18 million victory gardens in place by 1943. This was a successful program. 18 million. That's, I think I looked it up, and it's like 5% of the U.S. population had a garden. That seems very low. Which seems low, but... Is that the population, though, or is that, like, by family or household? That was the entire population. So if you did it by household, I couldn't find the quick census on household. And remember, they were counting in that 1943 total. They're still counting all the soldiers who were were (laughs) technically present. But Mm -hmm. it says, I mean, we've got, like, 40% of produce consumed in the U.S., by the end of World War II. So mm-hmm. it was having a significant right. impact. That's how much they were. Because remember, these were not small gardens. No. <laughs> so no, they were not. Yeah. So by the end of World War II, like Sarah said, 40% of the produce consumed in the U.S. was being produced. That's estimated. But that also means that 7 million acres were in production in just home gardens, like these community gardens. Right. Mm-hmm. That's Which still a, that's impressive. Yeah, and and also as we learned from these pamphlets, they were very focused on how to make the most of every little bit of land. Yes, like these were high production gardens where they were turning through. They weren't planting crops once. 
Right. They were moving through and planting spring crops and summer crops and fall Which, crops. Which, I mean, if you think about the the space that even if you even an individual family home in Lincoln gets for a yard, and how much that space actually has enough sun to plant a garden, and what it takes to feed four people, you would need to use every inch, right. and you would need to plant a couple harvests. Mm-hmm. at a time and i'm sure that this includes like in nebraska we are probably replanting once we are probably planting a spring crop and a right. fall crop but in you know the south i'm sure that they were they were getting maybe three in mm-hmm. fun fact too is in that total amount they didn't count potatoes for some reason so it said like 40 percent plus potatoes <laughs> well <laughs> So I can I can see that, but they counted other root vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just potatoes I mean, and sweet potatoes. <laughs> they didn't get interesting. I mean, but, I wonder if that's because they really fill a different place in the diet. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they don't fill the vegetable right. place. Yeah. Well, and one of the stats I they were estimating weight. So oh. also potatoes weigh a lot. Yeah, they would have really skewed that uh-huh. Uh-huh. statistic. So, anyways, um, overall lots of food and it really was a countrywide effort to do this there's some historians who are going back and saying the food problem wasn't as big of a deal as it was being made yeah. but it was a way to bring people together to mm-hmm. rally them around the around the war and we- give them something they felt i mean it's really hard to be in a bad situation, but it's extra hard to be in a bad situation when you feel like you can't do anything about right. it. Right, and I mean, yeah, that the World War Two, you knew someone in the war, right? And you affected. wanted a way to help. Yeah, yeah, it was very close to the heart for many, many people. So it was a big, it was a big effort that seemed to work for a while. Yeah, um, you most of these gardens. After World War II became obsolete, people stopped using them. Mm-hmm. So um, as soon as World War II was over, remember, then we entered the baby boom years and also the years of suburbia, so mm-hmm. moving to suburbia. And I think it's important to remember that women went to work during World War II. And, and they then, wanted to stay working. And they wanted to stay working. And that meant you couldn't move to suburbia, take care of your family, cook, take care of a garden, clean, and work. Right. Something had to go. Yeah. So that's why you see the resurgence, not resurgence, the surge uh, in that baby boomer time of jello molds (laughs) and canned meat (laughs) and TV dinners. That's when TV dinners came about, too. Yeah. And so um, gardens and fresh food kind of went away and they we we are now and earlier seeing a resurgence of the farm to table movement as well so it all kind of comes full circle around that but you can still visit victory gardens there's a replicated victory garden at the national museum of american history in washington dc and the Smithsonian Institute has a lot of information about Victory Gardens if you're interested in this. So that'll be linked in the show notes. Yeah. And then the Fenway Victory Garden in Boston is the oldest Victory Garden still operating. And it fills seven acres in the heart of Boston. That's impressive. Yeah, it's a big place. Our new employee, Brad, told me he's been there. 
cool. Yeah. And he said it was really awesome. And they continue to operate as a community garden. And then they add things throughout. So I saw on their website that they have added ADA garden spaces. Oh, very cool. So that anyone can come yeah. and garden. Well, before we kind of switch to, you know, some of our experiences growing vegetables and the similarities between native plants and vegetables, I, you kind of started to note that victory gardening as a, as a trend wasn't new to everybody. It was definitely, right. you know, we've got our, our urban spaces who weren't gardening a lot, but we had our, our rural families who still had their kitchen gardens. Mm-hmm. But it was also, you know, we had cultures that stopped gardening and needed to relearn. And we had cultures that never stopped. Yes, yeah. So it's important to remember that the Victory Garden movement was mostly a movement among white folks. And part of that is because black and brown folks never stopped gardening. They had passed down those traditions for many, many years, mostly because it was their only way of getting fresh food. Mm -hmm. So at the founding of the U.S., most of these folks were brought here against their will as enslaved people, and they were allowed to grow small portions of food for themselves as long as they shared portions of it with the main house. So even the area that they were given for themselves to grow food, they didn't get everything from that. And so it they have a long tradition of passing down gardening throughout the generations. And to this day, they continue. That's where you see a lot of the home gardening continue today. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of at this time of, you know, World War One started Right mm-hmm. as industrialization kind of was right wrapping up, and that's we didn't start talking about it this way till more recently. But that's when you would have started having kind of a food desert situation yep. where you had people living in urban areas with no access to produce mm-hmm. that wasn't canned or brought in. Um, and with the technology at the time, it would have had to be canned, pickled, somehow preserved mm-hmm. um, to get very far into an urban area. Yes, yes. So, yeah, I think it's important to remember that there were a lot of um, racial and cultural things happening at the same time that affected who was able to garden, who was already gardening, and acknowledged the privilege that some folks had that, one, they didn't have to garden to get their food, mm-hmm. and to that they could start a garden because they had the space, yes, the ability and to do it. I think this the USDA education programs probably played a huge role at this. I mean, we think about 1917, we still had large waves of immigrants coming yes. who would have had a learning curve to garden in a, in a new country um, with new... Well, yeah. I mean, in both wars, there were massive amounts of of immigration and refugees Mm -hmm. coming in as well. And we know that some of those folks brought seeds with them to continue planting here. What is what I wish we knew more about was I have a feeling and we know how what it takes to run a large educational campaign. So we it's it's hard to criticize too much. Well, how come you didn't include every bit of information possible? Especially in 1940. Especially in 1940. (laughs) But it is too bad that probably this would have covered up some of those um, 
you know, cultural gardening yeah. practices that got brought in because they they wouldn't have been recorded in this way. Right. And I think looking at the list of things that people were taught how to grow or given seeds for or laid out in the garden, I mean, I can I can see cultural foods missing right from there. Which is what I think is cool with this um, this time around, the mm-hmm. kind of coming back of Victory Gardens is people are using that template that like, how do I feed my family from this size plot of land? But now we're starting to get some of these cultural crops reincorporated into the garden. Yes, I think we have not done a great job, but and not I mean we in the royal sense, not we as in NSA <laughs> or me and Sarah, but people in general are starting to open up to let people talk about their cultural. <laughs> differences in what they need, especially in their food. And so I look to some of my favorite inner city food and gardening movements. I'm thinking like the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and um, some of those other, like the Golagichi movement, who are working on bringing back those cultural foods and passing that down to generations. Um, some of it was lost and some of it wasn't. Like I said, there there were some generations passing it down. But um, opening up the space to say, tell me, as opposed to me tell you. Well, and the channels, too, because yeah. now, uh, you know, in 19... 19- 20, you needed a printing press, you needed a a distribution channel, you needed someone that knew how to operate all of these things. Many people can figure out how to make a Facebook post and share information that they may not have known how to share with anyone other than their children. Yeah. And so we have the chance now to learn from groups that we're not physically a part of which is yeah very i mean that's why we're podcasting because we like to learn from other people and this all goes i mean we're talking about the colonization of the u.s here Mm -hmm. because we also have to remember there were native peoples Mm -hmm. using the land to get their food for ever before that and we're starting to see that resurgence too i just we just got that invitation to a um a conference that they're hosting here on East Campus that's going to talk a lot about native foods and uh, gardening and agriculture practices. So I'm excited to be a part of that. It's called the Great Plains Conference, Plant to Table. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of the title of it. In April. Yeah, it's coming up April 19th. So we'll share a link to that Mm because it sounds really cool. Sounds really good. I noticed that one of the native dinners, demonstration dinners, is already sold out. I would imagine. I mean, we're really kind of close to the Yeah, date. I know. <laughs> so I better get signed up for the ones I want to go to. Yep. They're doing one where it's a native dinner where um, one of the chefs is going to cook and then they're pairing it with glacial till. <laughs> <laughs> you would want to go to that so, one. <laughs> so... Um, I just want to acknowledge all of those pieces because Victory Gardens, um, it's easy to have rosy glasses about history. And so we want to make sure that when we're talking about what was a really awesome program, Victory Gardens, it was not inclusive of everyone. So let's acknowledge that. But I also wanted to note this this note that you placed here. Popular plants included things that could be easily canned and stored. Mm-hmm. And I just got to say, from somebody who has canned and stored 
That's... It isn't easy. <laughs> so, um, I think it was a skill that was much wider now. Yes, at time. it is definitely. I mean, I wonder. It's easy to look back at history and look at these produce numbers that were gathered nationwide into large statistics and the photos, which were likely taken of only successful gardens, and say, well, in 1920, everyone was good at gardening. Why do I suck at it so bad? No, I found found a New York (laughs) Times article. They referenced their own article in 1943 or something like that, where they said we're, or it was must have been earlier because they said we're a year into Victory Garden. How's your garden going? And people were like, that's terrible. (laughs) Nothing. I got nothing from my garden. So I think... um, yeah, like I said, it was propaganda in in the best sense that you can make for propaganda, which is they were only promoting good things, things that worked. Right, but but it is it sometimes what gets passed down is the successes, and mm-hmm. and then we can feel bad about our own efforts. And it um, was the original Facebook, yes, <laughs> where you only saw the good parts, only saw the good parts, but. That doesn't mean it is what is wonderful is that so many people tried Mm -hmm. and that they were trying to learn from their mistakes and that this was such, you know, we had two attempts at this. Not that we we are happy about that, but we they did have a chance to kind of learn from what went wrong and find the holes in people's knowledge and, and try to fill those. And it's okay if we don't harvest every bean from our bean plants mm-hmm. and perfectly preserve it mm-hmm. to be eaten by our family. Right. It just doesn't always go perfectly. Yeah. And th- that was part of their promotional projects that they did too. It wasn't just how to garden, then you'd get towards harvest and it would mm-hmm. be, here's how to can it. And here's recipes of how to make this sauce or whatever it was that you were going to make to can and put up. But I think that's why they also focused on root vegetables and squash because you didn't have to do anything with them. You just pile them in the basement. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Lots of people had root cellars, so it was easier to do that. If you're wondering where all this information went, like, why don't we have it anymore? We do. It just lives in our extension programs Mm -hmm. of our land-grant universities. A lot of people are familiar with the Master Gardener program uh, and different, like, you know, we have nutrition outreach through extension. Do you remember Neb Guides? Yep. <laughs> I think they're still a <laughs> do thing. Are they still a thing? I, they're I really a Neb hard guide to find. You time. did? I did in, uh, in college. Cool. What was it on? Um, environmental, something with environmental education. Makes sense. Or, or ecotourism. It was because my Those major are wildly was. wildly different things. No, that was a combined major. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But they're still out there. I was at um, an extension family field day up in Concord last mm-hmm. summer. And the next weekend, they were having a canning workshop. Yeah. So this, I need to go to one. I My friend, Terry. Hi, Terry. She taught, I think she listens. She taught me how to can. And I I haven't done it since. I feel bad because she, she was so nice. <laughs> we... Nick and I have canned pickles for a long time. Right. And that's kind of easy because anything with lots of acid is easy to can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But I tried to make jelly one time and it was, it never thickened and it turned solid white. Uh So I don't know. That doesn't seem right. What was happening there? (laughs) My mom tried to make an elderberry jam. That's what I, no, I tried choke cherry. And it didn't quite work, but it did 
stay in like a syrupy form. So we just used it as syrup well, and it was delicious. Syrup. Yeah. Yeah. No, was, mine was not was delicious. Great. Mine was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. I would love to be that person who like makes my handmade salsa or homemade salsa uh-huh. in the summer because we have a great salsa recipe and we always grow too many tomatoes mm-hmm. and then can it. But pff, I'm just not doing it. <laughs> I'm better at freezing. So yeah, I'll do like you can like blanch tomatoes and take their skins right. off and just freeze them and then use them for pasta sauce or mm-hmm. salsa in the winter. That's what I need to do. It's also just really easy. But whatever you do, do not freeze them without skinning them. Right. It's I disgusting. Oh, it's yeah. so disgusting. I did it one time. And what you get is these like tomato skins full of goo. And it's like... Because it does it inhibit the freezing process no, or something? I don't know what happens. Yeah. The interior of the tomato breaks down completely and the skin holds it in place. Uh. And it's so disgusting. And then you pop them. And oh, God. <laughs> I about got sick. I threw them all out. Oh, no. no. So that sounds terrible. They might have also been freezer burned. I never want to hear about popping a tomato. <laughs> Again. That's, that's it was so bad. It put me oh. off tomatoes for a while. Yeah, gross. We have friends that make their own ketchup. I have tried natural ketchups. I'm sorry. I need the process. <laughs> I didn't say it was fully natural. I just said they made it oh, themselves. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and I've got a friend who bakes and makes her own pie filling yeah. and cans it. And it's delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm more than happy to benefit from her skills. Right. We should just do an exchange. We should. Yes. That works. Okay, so one of the reasons why we're talking about this is because Victory Gardens made a bit of a comeback during COVID. Uh, At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there was worries that there might be food shortages. Because once again, labor was an issue as things were shutting down or Mm -hmm. people weren't, weren't wanting to go to work if it was an unsafe environment for those people who couldn't do their jobs from home we were fortunate to be able to do that um so people and it was a way to save money of course because so Mm -hmm. many people lost their jobs during the covid pandemic so a good way to save money was growing your own food it turned out that i mean looking a couple years back now there weren't a lot of food shortages there was it was toilet paper yeah. If you could make your own toilet paper. <laughs> I think we maybe did share a thing of like, here's the plants you could use for toilet paper. I mean, we hikers know which plants yep. you can use for toilet mm-hmm. paper. They're just not always in your backyard. Right. Because hopefully you don't need it. And yeah. Anyways, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> so there wasn't a whole lot of food shortages or the things that were short. Like I remember avocados at one point. We're a shortage. I don't eat a lot of avocados except for guacamole. Right. And we can't grow them. So a victory garden was not going to help me with an avocado shortage. But I am not an avocado toast person. Oh, I would eat avocado any day, anytime, <laughs> pretty much on anything. I think maybe my niece ate avocados as a baby. Like it was one of her oh, yeah. favorite foods. Tyler loved sure. avocados. I did not cook a whole lot while this was going on because I literally just had a baby. Right. Um, yeah. So we were eating stuff. I had frozen a whole bunch of food. Mm-hmm. So I really wasn't cooking a whole lot while all of this discussion of shortages was yeah. happening. And by the time I was again, I don't. 
Yeah, we all know where we saw the actual shortages. Yeah. It was, yeah. you know, in uh, computer chips, apparently. Yeah. Uh, My main, know. I mean, I fall in one of those areas that's difficult to get produce. I live in right. a small town that's just close enough to Lincoln and Omaha that sometimes our produce trucks deliver everything there. Mm -hmm. So my main shortage was that while I was working from home and I wasn't commuting to Lincoln, I I didn't have access to as many grocery stores. Right. Do you have you have we a have grocery, a grocery store, store and they do have. I mean, we have a full grocery store. Okay. It's not as big as the ones in Lincoln, right. but we it's definitely better than some small towns that don't have anything. Right. It much better. It. Mm -hmm. it I would say. Just from my observation, it seems to be that we just don't get produce trucks as often. Like, we get, yeah. like, one a week. Yeah. And so if you shop on that day, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> you got to know when the <laughs> trucks are coming. you got to know when in. the trucks are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings up a good point, because one of the other things that people were focusing on during COVID was how to decrease... I feel like there was a pretty big surge in how do I decrease my carbon footprint? Yes. It was another big thing. And people realized that they had the time, they mm -hmm. had the space, and they, and they just needed to learn a few new skills to be able to garden. And then they wouldn't be depending on vegetables and things being right. trucked in. Because, oh my gosh, 2020 was the worst. Remember, there was COVID. Well, for, not for you. You had a baby. That was exciting. <laughs> it was a great year for me. But, um... For everyone else, <laughs> we had a pandemic. There were fires. There uh -huh. was drought. There uh -huh. were floods. There, like, there was all of these things that people were trying to contend with that did impact. Um, I think there was a romaine shortage too, which I do well, I eat a lot like of. I feel like romaine gets salmonella like every other uh, week, all the time. And I think it's because it's grown in the desert, and so they're watering it with oh. water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. That uh, may, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it's grown in Arizona. Okay. Why are we growing lettuce in Arizona? Tell it's me. It's so this. easy to grow. <laughs> we should be growing lettuce everywhere we live. Yeah. But. So we're gonna get to that next. Mm -hmm. But anyways, Victory Gardens kind of made a comeback, and they are continuing to this day. We have seen that um, in the pandemic, people not only Victory Gardens but native gardening and just landscaping and gardening around their homes in general really, really took off because I think people realized the mental health benefits, the physical health benefits, and just the satisfaction of gardening. And more of their recreation time was being spent at home. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, a lot of the things that take us away from the landscape, like sports and clubs and mm -hmm. all of the things we go out and do, we were trying to replace with home activities. And I don't know about all of you, but home activities that did not involve a screen, because I was on Zoom all day for yes. work. <laughs> yes. For real. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So... We want to now talk to you about provision gardening, which is kind of a fun or not fun, depending on what you think of vocabulary, way of just saying like vegetable gardening, because you should be able to have your own victory garden yeah. if you want one. And some of you probably already have vegetable gardens and you're like, yeah, I've been doing this for years. This is not new. And you are right. <laughs> it's not new. But some people, it's still their first time. Right. And there's some twists that are being put on things now that... I mean, it, every 
things are always evolving, right? So the vegetable garden always looks different than it did 10 years ago. My vegetable garden looks different every year. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what provision gardening? How Uh do you separate that from just like vegetable gardening or just gardening? I separate it because to me, gardening is like just gardening on its own. It's just everything you do in the garden. It's everything I do in the garden. So it's my my native gardens, my bloom box garden, my vegetable garden. I'm working in the garden. It's just my outdoor space, I guess I would say. Provision gardening, vegetable gardening, to me, same thing. I like the term provisioning because it it doesn't, like, vegetable gardening doesn't always satisfy the fact that I also grow raspberries. Right. And strawberries, Mm -hmm. Silas would not. I love, (laughs) we can never get rid of our strawberry plants. Right, (laughs) right. In fact, we're adding a blueberry bush. Right. I just planted it. I planted it in the greenhouse to get it going. And we decided to name it Barry the Blueberry Bush. I name everything. Um, (laughs) Barry with an A. Yes. Barry with an A, the blueberry with an E. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. Um, So let's talk. Here's kind of how I was hoping we could compare. Okay. So what are some of the things that are the same between the way we garden in our bluebox garden, let's say that, and the way we garden in our vegetable gardens? I would say all of the tasks are the same. Mm -hmm. Just the way or the degree that we go about them might be different. So we have to water a vegetable garden. Usually more. Usually more. Mm -hmm. We have to weed a vegetable garden. Usually more. Right. Um, It's kind of like everything is a little bit more in the vegetable garden. But it's not really different tasks Mm -hmm. is kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah. And I was trying to think about like when I plant my vegetable gardens, I plant things really far apart because they're going to grow big. And you're laughing, but I'm, laughing. I'm not done with my yeah. statement, which is, but then I also plant different things in between them. I like that. So I think yeah. it, we continue that whole part of like plants can grow close together yeah. and they like to grow in communities. I think the difference with a bloom box garden and a vegetable garden is that in bloom box, we're planning for some of those filler plants to die in a couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, so as the other ones grow up and, and take over. In a vegetable garden, we're planning for them to, like, we're going to harvest them in a couple of weeks. Before the big plants get big. (laughs) Right, right. I'm laughing because I go in with that intention that I'm going to give my pepper plants the space to mature (laughs) so they can make a lot of peppers. And then I get greedy. And I'm like, I can fit one more in. And I just cram them together. And then I go in with my companion plants and say, mm-hmm. well, carrots can grow in front because they just grow straight down. Right. And then I throw some parsley in behind because it just grows anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I cram in some radishes because you harvest those early anyway. Mm-hmm. So I tend to not get as much from each plant as I could if I gave them the space. But I definitely have variety. Do you plant marigolds? No. I did <laughs> last year on accident. Someone gave me some, and I'd used these landscape brick, you know, the kind with holes, cinder yep. blocks, mm-hmm. to keep Silas from climbing these stairs in our backyard. Oh, And yeah, so I yeah. stuck marigolds in the holes of them. Sure. They did okay. <laughs> um, but I don't do it for the purpose of protecting my plants. Yeah. I don't even know if it's a real 
thing. Like I think it is. So I see on our list we're going to talk a little bit about like chemicals and yeah. and keeping. And one of the ways that I have been always been taught is like plant marigolds with your vegetables and it keeps certain pests away. Well, part I don't of, know. I mean, <laughs> my garden is very protected. Oh, okay. Because it's it's on a retaining wall with a fence right behind it. So I don't have rabbit problems in it, which I think is what marigolds are mainly targeted yes. at. I think so. And last year was the first year I didn't get marigolds put in, and it was my worst rabbit year. Well, then that might just make sense. Or they had a lot of babies. Or, yes. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> or somebody cleaned up the neighborhood cats. I don't know. That might have been. But Alistair was doing work on it because he killed I think nine rabbits Go last summer. Wow. Babies. Oh well I mean that's less impressive but at least it's I getting the job done. I think he found some nests and then the worst slash best part was he would line them up in front of the door for me so I knew when I got home he had been at work. <laughs> <laughs> Look I did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah so I've never done it but mostly because I don't have any reason to. I just don't have a problem. We have a neighborhood fox, too. That definitely that helps. helps. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. So, planting together. Mm-hmm. There's one. How about chemicals and okay. fertilizer, all that stuff? So, I wrote down this list of how are vegetable gardens different and how are they the same. And mm-hmm. one of the ways they're the same is that a lot of our produce plants still benefit pollinators. Right. Um, in fact, we need them to benefit pollinators or we won't have any tomatoes because they need insects to pollinate them. Well, yeah, my dill and parsley are always covered in... Right. My herbs are caterpillars. definitely... I, my herbs don't need to be pollinated for my sake, but my pepper plants do, my tomato plants do, my mm-hmm. strawberries do. So that's great. But because I also garden for pollinators in the same yard, I want to be really careful about the chemicals I use in my vegetable mm-hmm. garden um, because they don't differentiate. They don't know which butterfly is a cabbage loper and which butterfly <laughs> is right. a swallowtail. Yeah. Um, so, or a tomato hornworm. Yeah. I have a small enough garden that I just pick caterpillars off. Sure. Um, it's just easy. I mean, my garden is raised in front of my face and it's not that big. But even this is where even organic gardeners need to be careful because it doesn't matter if it's organic or not. If it was designed to kill a bug, it will kill a pollinator just as easily as a pest. Yep. Um, so we need to think about other controls like marigolds. Or Yeah, um, and one of the things to remember about marigolds is they're one of the few plants that it actually will benefit your pollinators to plant from seed oh, instead okay. of from um, getting like starts of them because they're an annual. Yeah. And so there are quite a bit of, I think, neonics in oh, them right. yep. already when you get them. Yep. So, and they don't have the growing time to grow out of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you are supporting pollinators, this is something I learned the hard way. So yeah. I, we always there's always something more to learn. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. when we look at pests in the garden, we're looking at deterrent rather than 
destruction. <laughs> so I was trying to come up with a fun way to say that. There is none. I had to pick up something from the vet office yesterday. And yeah. in their lobby, they were showing Bugs Life. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't seen Bugs Life in so long. And I was, like, watching it. And I said, oh, my God, maybe this is why we like pollinators Maybe. So I definitely watched Bugs great. Life. That and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where oh, they ride yeah. the ant. That thing was cool. I went on that ride at Disneyland. Cool. It was like one of the first like 40 like glasses and it would move you. And That's when the dog sneezed, it sprayed water on ew. you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So, yeah, we we think about, you know, we don't have to say we're sacrificing pollinator habitat to have a vegetable garden. They're also beneficial. We just need to pay attention to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yes, even if it's an organic pesticide, it's still designed to kill bugs. Right. Even the ones you like. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's the same. Something that's a little different is the soil fertility. I was going to just, I knew you were going to talk about <laughs> soil. <laughs> because soil compaction is also a little Compaction's different. Compaction's also a little different. So with fertility, we've been talking this whole time about how we don't really care if you get a soil test. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter for a perennial garden. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it it does, but yeah. not to the finesse. If everything's dying, get a soil test. <laughs> right. If everything's not dying, a little compost is probably yeah. enough. In the vegetable garden, we're talking about, you talked about the victory gardens. They're very intensive. We're farming this ground now. Yeah, it needs to be replenished yeah. at some point. Too. We are planting a lot of things in the soil that we're asking to produce something for us without adding a whole lot back in. Right. It's like if you were doing intense workouts every day and never eating. Right. <laughs> or or you were just normally eating and you weren't adding in any extra yeah. protein. Mm-hmm. So this is where, it, and it doesn't need to be complicated. There's you, nope. the, the tests you buy in the store are fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to tell you enough for a vegetable garden. But this is where, you know, when I talk about adding manure to my garden, this is where I'm adding it. I'm not adding it to my landscape beds. I'm yeah. adding it to my food production gardens. Mm-hmm. Give it a little boost. Yes. Because you're asking it to do a lot of work. And then yeah. you're taking it away. You know, in our perennial gardens, we're leaving everything to decay. Mm-hmm. In the vegetable garden, we're kind of taking it all away from the garden. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do let things rot in place, which is why I get volunteer plants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm not very, you know, people. It, it depends if you've had if you've been burned with disease problems, yeah. then you're probably very careful about cleaning up your garden. Yep. If you haven't had disease problems, I tend to let a lot of stuff decay mm-hmm. um, in the garden. But if you have diseases, you don't have that luxury. You right. have to get stuff out. Yeah. And that's also one of the challenges of having a vegetable garden in the same place every year. Yes. Because things figure out where it is yeah and they stick around Mm -hmm. Uh, but one of the similarities in tasks that differs a little in execution is mulching in the Mm -hmm. vegetable garden we still mulch a lot of people don't i don't know if i understand why they don't Uh, because straw mulch in the in the vegetable garden goes a long way yeah i don't use wood mulch in my garden I don't either. I use straw in my vegetable mm-hmm. garden or grass clippings mm-hmm. because I know that we don't use chemicals yep, on our grass. Same. Uh, but I mulch really thick, which also is the opposite of the perennial garden. Yeah. I mulch like thick. four or five, six yeah. inches deep. 
And not only does this hold moisture in, because we talked about we have to water the vegetable garden more, but it it helps buffer from diseases that sit on the plant leaves. When those leaves drop, they're not dropping straight into the soil, and you can take out that straw mulch mm-hmm. and and have a better chance at having kept that disease out right. of your soil. Yeah. One thing that's the same is, good gracious, water as close to the soil as you can. Yep. That goes for yep. anything. I run a soaker hose under my mulch. Me too. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and water that way because that's the one garden that I do water mm-hmm. all the time. And it's because we're asking it to do a lot of work. So yep. we have to help it out. And we're asking it to grow things that aren't adapted. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that um, vegetable plants are more susceptible to some of the molds and things that you can right. get from watering incorrectly well and the burns right tomatoes especially overhead watering in the vegetable garden is a prime cause of disease and plant damage i mean Mm -hmm. from droplets staying on leaves and burning them to just like weighing down the tops of our plants that Mm -hmm. are also trying to hold up heavy fruits and then yeah moisture on the leaves contributes to mold so water from the ground and preferably under your mulch so that even though you're watering this more than other gardens, you're not sending half of it evaporating into the air. Right. And one more thing that's the same is do it as much or as little as you want. Exactly. Make it sustainable for you. <laughs> so I know a lot of people right now are doing their indoor seed starts. Mm-hmm. And I'm all, I always had a lot of guilt for not doing my seed starts. And then I just decided... I don't have time. That is not something that I can do. Also, I'm quite bad at it. I've never even tried. I'm just like that. I don't have the. Yeah, I just can't. I'm not going to. So I'm going to buy them. Right. There's a few things that I do like like lettuce. You can just because it's an early vegetable, you can plant it right in the ground. I do seed seed. like carrots and radishes, everything that you seed into the ground. But Mm -hmm. our local school's fundraiser is a plant sale. And so I get all my vegetable starts that way. There's all sorts of garden clubs have fundraisers Mm -hmm. around vegetable starts. And I don't have to do the work. And it's a donation. Right. So don't feel bad if you're the one who's not doing your seed starts right. in your house. Fine. And also, if you are the person doing your seed starts, great. Yeah. I know we're kind of if running out of... If you have extra, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're kind of running out of time, and this is probably an episode of its own. Yeah. But one thing I wanted to point out that's changing about the way we see food gardening and also making our perennial gardens more similar to our vegetable gardens is that we're starting to see the variety of foods. You talked about... Um, relearning foraging plants Mm -hmm. so you know in my yard i have a vegetable garden but we also have trees and shrubs that we harvest food from yeah i'm not there yet (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna do it sometime do it um but i've got blackberries Mm -hmm. on a bush Mm -hmm. that came with our house we're planting a cherry tree this spring we're going to plant a currant it's still under officially still under discussion but we're gonna plant a current (laughs) (laughs) and we've got our strawberries that come back Uh every year so i'm seeing more discussion about seeing all of the food in the garden not just the vegetable seeds as food right yeah and interspersing the two i mean english gardens 
traditionally had like they grew cabbage next to the right plant that's you how know, we ended was, up with decorative kale right yeah so i mean also if you don't have a raised garden bed who cares right. put that tomato plant right in the middle <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. It might even do better with some support from your big blue stem. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. Never it- tried it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was very fun. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple, one more question? Yeah. Just one more. Okay. What do you think is a good starter pack of plants <laughs> for a vegetable gardener? Tomatoes for sure. So you I'm going to... have gonna... to grow a tomato if you like. Right. I, it's kind of funny. I have a degree in production horticulture. I took multiple labs that involved growing vegetables from seed. I'm not very good at vegetable gardening because I'm, I don't like how much it needs me. (laughs) It's too needy. (laughs) It's too needy. I like my perennials. So if I can grow and harvest food from it, it's probably a good starter plant. And I've had really good success with herbs. Yeah. Um, just basically a perennial. Just, which is basically a perennial. <laughs> but I mean like cilantro and parsley oh, yep. and ba- mm-hmm. basil. Mm-hmm. They do need some water, but otherwise they're pretty much on their own. Do you put them in the ground or do you put, pot them? I put them in the ground. All right. Um, because if it's in a pot, I'll really let it die. <laughs> that needs way too much water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Watering attention from me. Um, and we eat so much of it. Like, I like to make green yeah. sauce out of parsley. And so I take the whole plant every mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So those I've had really good success with. Bean, green beans. They go wild. So they're yep. like, you have to, they take a little space. Kind of like a tomato plant. But mm-hmm. they are very forgiving of you forgetting to water them. I think any greens, like, because lettuce, most, like, kale, non-head lettuce, I would say, um, green leaf lettuce, that kind of stuff, grows so easily. Quickly. And quickly. Yeah. Just know when to harvest it. Right. Don't let it go too long. I would say it's really easy to grow. It's harder to know when to harvest. Just take a piece and taste it. Yeah. Because (laughs) if it goes too far, it will get bitter. Mm -hmm. So it's... It's better to eat it early. Mm-hmm. I also think for new gardeners, the faster it produces, the easier because it, it's just nice to have the fast success. Yeah. So like snap peas. Mm-hmm. I love green beans, but they take forever. Snap peas, you can eat them so quickly. Yep. Radishes. Yeah. Carrots. Carrots. I've had great success with carrots. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like a really clay soil, but... Honestly, I just amended mine with some leftover sandbox sand. There you go. go fine. Nice. I like it. Also, all those things we mentioned are less prone to diseases. Mm-hmm. Like potatoes might be easy to grow, but there's so many diseases. Yeah. And like zucchinis, squash, so, has so easy many. to grow, but so many pests. Mm-hmm. So until you're more comfortable with pest control, mm-hmm. those are harder. Yeah. And thinning. Yes. Because a lot of the bigger squashes... You need to be able to thin. Yes. And you need to be okay with the fact that you have to pull some of the flowers off. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's yep. a tough... Yes. I know I know. people always get... Like, Nick always is looking over my shoulder when I thin the carrots. Like, you're pulling, you're pulling all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that I can have some big ones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, excellent. Well, thanks for talking about yeah. victory gardens and vegetables that with me. That was such a fun episode. That was a good one. So what's your plant of the week? Okay, Is it I, carrots? No, <laughs> I mentioned it really quickly. I'm so excited. I'm getting a cherry tree. I was visiting Great Plains a couple weeks ago and just happened to see the list of incoming fruit trees laying on the counter. And they had a Stella cherry tree, which is only supposed to get 18 feet tall. And I figured even if they're wrong and it gets a little bigger than that, that's still a really small tree. I can fit that somewhere in the yard. So we found a place for it. It's actually going to be a straight tree. (laughs) But in Wahoo, we have really big right of ways. So it will never touch the street. You didn't get to see the side eye I gave her. It's like mm, <laughs> she gave me a very weird look. Those are not the street it's trees. It's not okay for a street tree, but we have like they're going to drop cherries on It won't even go over the street. It's it might that go over big? the Yeah. Wow. They're very you Okay. You'll have to see it sometime. Yeah. I should measure it. Our maple tree barely goes over the street. Oh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So, You're it's good. kind of a funny setup, but that's where we found room for it. I'm so excited. That's going to be awesome. Yes. I'm excited It'll for that. Check back. Oh, it's also self-pollinating, so I don't need more than one. Because that was the challenge. Like, yes. I could fit one fruit tree in, but I couldn't fit two. Yeah. So then so you excited. start begging your neighbors, will yeah. you plant this? Will you plant the cherry tree? <laughs> <laughs> right. Which, for some people, that works. Yeah. I, um, we just don't. Our neighbors have that. Has a house sold yet? Yes, it oh, actually okay. sold yesterday. <gasps> oh, okay. So there if I was fast and planted a tree, the new owners would never know. <laughs> never it wasn't know. There. <laughs> they would have no idea. And you'd be like, "Oh yeah, you can get cherries." Yeah, from that. yeah. It's always been there. Please don't cut it down. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay, my plant of the week doesn't have a name because, as a reminder, last fall I planted all the bulbs and I don't know what's where. Oh, so that's okay. <laughs> bulbs are so cool. So my bulbs are starting to come up. Yay. Then I will know what is where. Yes. And then I will mark them in yes. theory. We say that every year. <laughs> I am really, truly planning this year to do the little colored rocks mm-hmm. on golf tees. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. So they're just little peaks right now so excited from the soil and i'm excited to see if i did a good job or not (laughs) placing them and we'll go from there okay yeah all right well thank you everybody for listening we hope you enjoyed this i wanted to let you all know that in may mid-may we are doing a question and answer episode so send in your questions now but remember we won't get to them till may so um think ahead <laughs> we will answer your question to you you right. don't have to wait till may for the answer but right. we will share your question in may right yes 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 so please send those in either recorded or via email and don't forget to rate and review us to make hannah pay because that's the best way for us to reach new folks bloombox and bloombox growing deeper are both programs of the nebraska statewide arboretum